Hi, and welcome to Fair Perspectives, the official podcast of the pro-human movement. I'm your host, Melissa Chen, and my co-host, who you will hear from shortly, is Angel Eduardo. Today, we speak with Nick Gillespie. Nick is an editor-at-large at Reason, the libertarian magazine of free minds and free markets, and host of the Reason Interview with Nick Gillespie. He serves on the board for Ideas Beyond Borders and is the co-author with Matt Welch of the Declaration of Independence, How Libertarian Politics Can Fix What's Wrong with America. We discuss what libertarianism is and is not, the relationship to anarchism, the role of the state in an ideal society, the lack of a unifying social or political narrative, libertarianism's successes in the West, the rise of China as a world power, social media, and the tensions between libertarian views on private companies versus free expression, Francis Fukuyama, and our crisis of identity, and more. Nick emailed us shortly after the recording to make one correction. At one point, Nick refers to there being currently 100,000 school districts in the United States, a reduction from previous numbers, but there are actually currently 13,500 school districts, also a reduction from previous numbers of 100,000 in 1940. And now I bring you Nick Gillespie. Nick Gillespie, welcome to Fair Perspectives. I, uh, you know, I want to call you out on uh, mispronouncing uh, my name. What? <laughs> There's no way. I feel, uh, yes, it's Gillespie. Oh, Gil- Gil- the hard Gil- G. Okay. Yes. Nick Gillespie. And thank you. I, uh, I feel seen now. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, for the two of you who don't know, um, if you actually look up the, the dictionary and, and you try to look up what libertarianism is, you will in fact see Nick's face on it. Um, Nick is the um, symbol and figurehead of libertarianism in the same way that the Queen of England uh, was the figurehead of the British Empire. So you're uh, saying that I'm dead. I thank you very much for that. And yes, that's why we're all actually wearing black. It's got nothing to do with Nick. We're just in national mourning. And as a um, libertarian Irish, part Irish American, I'm sure you have uh, interesting thoughts about the British monarchy. Uh, you know, uh, I talked about this uh, on Reason's podcast. Uh, you know, all of my stuff is is up at Reason.com. But I prefer the Sex Pistols circa 1977's take on the queen, uh, that she ain't no human being, to the one that Johnny Lydon, Johnny Rotten, actually put up on Twitter shortly after he died, which was essentially rest in peace. I don't pay the queen any mind. Uh, my uh, Irish grandparents left Ireland in the uh, 19-teens. And really never looked back. And, you know, she seemed like a nice person, but I thank God that I don't live in a world of monarchy. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. Yeah, I would also add, I, I think if I am indeed the face or figurehead of libertarianism or li- the libertarian movement, that might explain why we're doing so fantastically well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I guess, I guess, um, it's almost it's almost inherent in libertarianism to say, well, how how dare he? We would we would never have a figurehead or a <laughs> a right, face, right. right? It's it's all very much about not that sort of thing. But there's so much in my view, in my trying to understand libertarianism. There's so much noise. Mm-hmm. There's so much wackiness, and we don't need to get into the you know specific 
craziness with, you know, the political party itself. But I keep thinking back to that moment where Gary Johnson was being booed for saying that, you know, he thinks driver's licenses are a good idea. Right. <laughs> and like, you know, there's That's the all ultimate this... repression, you know, do, right. do we, do we need permission or not from the state? Right. I mean, that's... right. So it, it just, there's a lot of just weirdness. So let's just clear yeah. the air, at least from your perspective, what is libertarianism and what is libertarianism or what is not uh, libertarianism? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I don't think I can make a definitive definition, and I, I suspect that we're going to talk about postmodernism in a bit, which actually fits into the way that I talk about libertarianism. Yeah, uh, you know, which is that I, I don't want to make uh, grand, overarching statements because I don't think that's how human society works. I don't think it's how human knowledge works. It's always partial and incremental. I'll give you my best take, which is mm-hmm. you know, libertarianism is a philosophy. That comes out of the, you know, the liberal movement and the, the liberal elements of the Enlightenment. And it focuses on giving individuals as much autonomy and choice to create the world that they want to live in. So it is, you know, it is the shift in, uh, in world history, really, from kind of total institutions, whether we're talking about religions or states and nations and things like that, to one which is more focused on the individual as the constituent you know, kind of element of everything. And it ultimately is about choosing. It's about choosing how to live. It's about choosing where to, where to live. It's choosing about what to believe. And, you know, in its economic application that tends towards free markets or, you know, what's called free markets or capitalism. In politics, it's uh, limited government because individuals have certain rights that the majority cannot vote to take away from everybody. But, and this is where I disagree with some of my libertarian friends, you know, I, I'm not an anarchist and I don't think it, I, I'm not taking all of these ideas to their logical conclusions, you know, where uh, there is no state, there is no, uh, under no circumstances would there ever be, uh, would you ever allow such an oppressive regime as a driver's license system? Uh, you know, like <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not there yet, you know, give me, you know, the fourth or fifth administration of the Ron DeSantis presidency and maybe I'll be there. <laughs> I don't know, but right now, uh, not so much. But it's it's essentially it's it's liberalism, it's it's tolerance, it's pluralism, it's a belief in progress with a small p, mm. and it is ultimately about individuals being set free to create the communities that they are most interested in opting into. Another a shorthand way that a guy uh, named Leonard Reed, who founded way back, uh, I guess in the '30s, one of the oldest. Uh, organizations that could be considered libertarian, uh, Foundation for Economic Education, he uh, called it anything that's peaceful. That's also, mm-hmm. you know, another way of thinking about it. Yeah, that actually reminds me of uh, a notable libertarian. Uh, it's been a while since I've listened to him, though, so I don't know if it's shifted. But Penn Jillette always talked about, basically, the scenario you should envision is what would you be willing to hold people at gunpoint for? And that's, that's kind of what the limits of, of libertarianism is. So it's, so, uh, or the limits of, of government would be right. There's a monopoly on force and then there's a monopoly mm -hmm. on maybe a couple of other things. But besides that, if you can imagine someone holding you at gunpoint for it and having that be egregious and ridiculous, then it's, it's out of the bounds of libertarianism. Does that still make sense or? I, I so a bit. I uh, recently did a very long and interesting and fun interview with Penn, uh, and who 
uh, during COVID kind of was, he both took himself out of the libertarian movement and was cast out by various people. And we talked a lot about that, but that's a, you know, that's a fairly good idea. You know, in, in politics, you know, libertarianism is limited government. In economics, it is, if not full laissez-faire capitalism, uh, you know, it errs on the, the, the default setting is to allow people to do things rather than not. Uh, you know, it's, it's bottom up as opposed to top down. And I think in social, you know, kind of in, in social and cultural context, it's very much about laissez-faire, you know, that, that people have a broad right to live how they want to live, to eat how they want to eat, to uh, speak how they want to speak, to create the art and the buildings and the structure. And again, I keep coming back to this idea of communities, you know, that you, you get to run as many experiments in living as John Stuart Mill might say, as, as possible. Uh, years and years ago now, I think this would have been in the late 90s, I talked about um, kind of a libertarian sense of government as a kind of operating system. You know, if, if we think about an operating system like uh, Windows um, or iOS or something like that, but where it's the operating system that allows an infinite number or something approaching infinity, a number of uh, individual applications to run without crashing the system. So it's, you know, very basic rules kind of respect, dignity, uh, property rights, but then there is a role also for certain types of limitations on that. If you are acting in a particular way, is going to completely crash the system. And we'll always be arguing about where that line is being drawn, just as your know, 19th, uh, 18th and 19th and 20th century liberals did. So, uh, you know, and that's, that's where it gets confusing and kind of interesting, I think. Well, Nick, you, you mentioned it's bottom up as opposed to top down. Mm-hmm. And what I find interesting about the time that we're living in right now is that you have a sort of interesting kind of censorship that's coming from bottom up. And, you know, you, you have the China system where yep. it's, it's very top down. The government censors a lot of stuff. They control what you can say and what right. you cannot. And, and in the United States, you know, we, we don't have those kind of institutional control from the government in terms of speech, at least. But but we have a sort of bottom-up censorship. And it's, it's interesting how that ends up converging closer than, than one might normally expect yeah. in theory. Or, or that it's more repressive. You know, it's more effective. I mean, this is one of, you know, the joke I used to make. I, I've been at Reason Magazine, which was started in 68 and is kind of like, you know, if libertarianism has a, a monthly magazine and a website, you know, it's Reason. And uh, by the way, there are like, you know, millions of people who will absolutely disagree with that. So, uh, you know, f- fuck them. But, um, you know, part of uh, part of the idea, you know, behind libertarianism was, well, you know, the government isn't really good at what it does. It's kind of incompetent at best and malevolent at worst. But that, uh, you know, and even John Stuart Mill talks about this, too, of that, you know, it's actually it's churches and society and and, you know, non-governmental institutions or organizations that are much more successful at repressing and oppressing people. It, maybe not in oppressing people, but so Melissa, to your point, uh, you know, when, when we talk about things like speech codes and when we talk about, you know, wokeness or, you know, what used to be called political correctness getting into people's heads in the United States, it's it, at least until now, it's not fun. It's not mostly the government doing this kind of stuff, but it can be very effective because, you know, you don't want to be cast, you know, it's one thing to be cast out of, you know, the state assembly in upstate New York or something like that. It's another thing to be 
cast out of your family or your tribe or your religion or the only real community you've ever known. So I, you know, this goes to both a strength and a limitation, I think, of libertarianism, as it's been kind of articulated over the past 50 years or so, is that it often has a focus almost exclusively on state power, which makes sense. But in the current moment, it kind of misses that larger, you know, that larger threat, which can come from, you know, and it, and it can be, you know, like the, uh, you know, the vegan co-op, uh, at, you know, wherever Blake Masters went to college, uh, you know, uh, kind of trying to shut down discourse or something like that. But it can also be a corporation. It can be, you know, within a company shutting down things. You know, Google, which is a very liberal corporation, obviously both, you know, said that it wanted wide ranging debate on all kinds of things internally because they understand that's how you get better products and more interesting things going. But, you know, obviously they didn't want that. And, you know, and, and then many uh, corporations have, you know, very uh, strict speech codes, which is also not always bad. But, uh, you know, to that larger point, power, mm-hmm. power is not simply, you know, coming from politics or the government or even the men with guns. It can be you know, it can be coming from all sorts of ways. I don't know if any of you were raised Catholic, uh, but I was and the Catholic Church, which in a way did have access to guns and things like that. But, you know, it's primary. And this is, I guess, true of most religions. The primary way that it replicates itself is not through force explicitly. It's, you know, it's through mental kind of contortions and, and mm-hmm. kind of, you know, wrestling people into points of view so that they they censor themselves before they even have certain kinds of thoughts. Right. It's, yeah, I, I was raised Catholic too. And it's, it's a psychological warfare. It's a very, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's uh And again, it's not bad. You know, it's, it's, for me, this is the fundamental issue mm-hmm. for a kind of libertarian worldview. And I like to, I, I don't like to use libertarian as a noun or, or invoke libertarianism. I like using libertarian as an adjective or, you know, it's kind of directional. It is just, it's a preset. It's not the be all and end all. Mm. But, you know, it isn't bad to have organizations like that. The real question is whether or not people are free to leave, you know, uh, are are people free to criticize and are people free to leave? Uh, Albert Hirschman, a political economist, uh, wrote a book in the early 70s called uh, Exit Voice and Loyalty. And it was about how how do people deal with systems in decline, whether it's a corporation or a state or a society. And he said, you know, there's basically three strategies. There's uh, uh, loyalty, which is you become a company man or a super patriot and you just put up with whatever's going on. You use voice, which is that you use whatever kind of uh, notions of remedy or, or possibilities to talk about stuff and to run, reform things from within, or you uh, access exit and just leave and, and start your own thing. And, you know, those, that's to me, like if we're living in a society where you have exit voice and loyalty, that's pretty good. Mm. Yeah, that, that's what I meant about the, the psychological warfare. I don't mean to paint mm-hmm. the whole spiel that way, even though my experience was mainly that. But, you know, yeah, there is this thing of yeah. you can't really leave. You know, <laughs> if you leave, there are severe consequences, you know, relationship-wise, psychologically, right. um, you know, existentially probably, right? That there are all these things that maybe it's kind of like, a, like an invisible fence. Right. They don't, right. They don't necessarily show you or tell you that it's there, but it, you feel it as you get towards the edges, you start to feel the shocks and it makes it more difficult to move. Now, I, right. 
So, you know, I know Melissa has a lot of really in-depth, awesome questions for you, and I don't want to monopolize the time. But let's but I, not do that. Yeah, let's I have, talk about I have, Catholicism instead. Well, no, 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 no. But I just have more more sort of, I guess, pedestrian yeah. questions about, sure. about libertarianism. And I like your conception of it because I, I think you seem to understand certain limitations of going all in on any kind of ism, mm-hmm. right? I love mm-hmm. your idea of using it as an adjective rather than a noun because- then it qualifies things and it informs things, but it is not the be all end all, as you said. Right. And one of those problems that I see is, you know, it all sounds great and I'm for it where, you know, individuals are the, you know, that is the fundamental unit, the individual human being. And given all the diversity and variety in terms of perspective and desires and all that sort of stuff, that's great to be able to keep that field as open as possible. Um, and having it, having things work bottom up in terms of choice and how we structure things and how we live our lives. That's great. And then of course there are, you know, top down things that we have to grapple with and deal with. But I feel like there's also something that a lot of people may not take into consideration, which is that there are also outside in factors, Mm -hmm. right? Which is that, you know, for example, you're taller than me. That's going to make a difference Mm -hmm. in a few fundamental ways that I can't do anything about, right? Uh, we can argue about which one of us is more handsome, but that also yeah. plays a part, right? And there's not a lot we can do about that either, mm-hmm. uh, unless we have tons of money for plastic surgery where I can become a clone of you, you know? So there, 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 there are things like that, talent, skills, mm-hmm. all these things that, that play a part in what choices we're able to make or what choices yeah. e- even occur to us to make. Right. And sure. that's, that becomes for me, the place where there's a window toward, yep. toward, you know, some sort of top down thing to help even things out. You know? Yeah. So uh, can I, uh, can yeah. I uh, suggest like, maybe it's, it's not top down, but this is where, you know, I said earlier that I, I, I'm not an anarchist, you know, I believe in limited government and mm-hmm. I think there's a, a legitimate role for the state. And one of them is, is exactly in the sort of circumstances that you're talking about. And I'm not saying, you know, there, you know, the state should give everybody a voucher for $20,000 of uh, plastic surgery so they could become whoever they <laughs> want. Let's all look like Nick Gillespie. <laughs> but uh, God, that would be a terrifying world. Uh, more for me than anyone else, I think, because I see myself in the mirror, right? But um, no, but, um, you know, like this, this, when you talk about that, one of the questions, and this is something that came up a lot in 19th and, and early 20th century discussions of liberalism and to a certain degree, libertarianism, but if people have, you know, are given choice or they're responsible for their choices, but they don't really have a way to participate in society, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that is grotesque, right? I mean, because you're kind of holding them accountable for things that they can't really do anything about. And that's one of the reasons, you know, that's the argument for public funding of education, not for the school system we have now, but for the state to say, we are going to help people who for whatever reason, are not able to, you know, their parents, uh, you know, you're a kid and your parents are not able to like help you participate fully by getting a decent education, at least a rudimentary one, or you don't have access to food. So you can't grow, you know, to whatever you would be assuming, you know, good nutrition. So we're going to help with that kind of stuff. So I think, you know, I'm with you on that. And then we can agree on that goal. And then there are different ways to implement it. So for instance, you know, like what we've developed in the United States is, you know, a system of public education, uh, which is not 
you know, it's not centered on the individual on giving the individual kid or their parents acting as their guardians choice. It is, you know, it's created, you know, it's created these large buildings that look very much like minimum security prisons. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and, and that's what we're funding as opposed to saying, <laughs> yeah. okay, here's money. You know, we might put some guardrails on what you can do with it, but basically go and find amid, you know, all of the offerings here, um, an education that you think will be good for your kid. And, you know, and, and you want to maintain, uh, you know, one of the things about libertarians, uh, you know, and, and I think there's some truth to this, that as a social movement, it is, you know, predominantly white and upper middle class and male. I think all of these things are changing and then they're not fully accurate, but it, believes in true diversity because one of its starting points is that all of us have different wants and also different talents and different things we want to be doing. And the last thing you want to do, I mean, when you look at, again, just to focus on education, because I mean, you guys obviously deal with a lot of that. Education is, a, you know, has functioned as a great homogenizer in American society in the worst ways possible. And I think that's coming out more and more now where you, you know, uh, my parents, who were the children of immigrants who grew up in uh, in Waterbury, Connecticut, my mother in an Italian ghetto, and, and my father was born in Hell's Kitchen here in New York and grew up in Manhattan and Brooklyn, you know, the public schools were not designed to allow them to, you know, bloom as individual flowers. It was, you know, they were being taught to become, you know, kind of widgets on an assembly line of what it meant to be an American, what it meant to be a good citizen, what, you know, et cetera. And like, there were some real benefits to that, but it was not about diversity, you know, like allowing diversity to, to develop and flourish. It was quite the opposite. So, uh, you know, not to, you know, go off too much on education, although I think it's really important because it focuses both on a limitation or a perceived limitation of libertarian uh, ideology. What do you do about kids? Uh, because it's one thing for adults to be responsible for themselves, but also what its goals are, which is really to create a society that is as rich and varied as the individuals in it. And all of those people, regardless of their starting points of where you get kind of thrown into history or thrown into existence, how do you get the best shot possible at participating? You know, and I think, you know, with a little help, uh, and it can, sometimes it comes from private organizations that it, you know, it can also come from the state as well. And then, but the important thing is that it's facilitating individual empowerment and flourishing, not just feeding into these giant, you know, kind of buildings and machines and institutions that don't actually serve people, they feed on on individuals, right? I will say, Nick, though, that the global perspective on American education mm -hmm. is already that it is very decentralized, um, especially if you compare mm -hmm. to other education systems like in France, in the UK, yep. um, even where I grew up in Singapore. You have very centralized educations. There's national curricula. And, you know, even in France, like the um, examination system is, is mm -hmm. highly centralized. So, so the United States is unique. And I think people yep. around the world do actually look to the U.S. as a place where there is, you know, if you kind of plot the, the, the normal, the, the distribution, you will see very, very wide tails, right? So you'll have super geniuses. Mm -hmm. You'll have on the other end also people that just really don't perform very well. Yeah. But then the whole average, I think it, it had been my view until I got here that one of the reasons why Americans actually perform very poorly in, in global tests, like the PISA rankings and mm -hmm. in, in math proficiency right. and English proficiency 
is is actually the lack of anything central uh, because we don't have, you know, national testing in a way. You know, we we use the SATs to kind of uh, see how a GPA from this school in Connecticut can, you know, compares to one in California. Um, but but other than that, it's it seems to me that America already has a very uh, decentralized system. And it wasn't until it became very clear that there was a an, kind of an, a force in America slowly indoctrinating students that I realized, actually, this decentralized system might be the only thing that's kind of holding it back. And, and, and coming to that to that position to say like, okay, you know what, maybe this wasn't a, a bad thing. Maybe decentralization wasn't a bad thing. Yeah. It's also, I mean, one of the things to think about is, you know, what are, what are the choices in front of any, you know, given individual? And you're, you're totally right that in, in an international comparison, the U.S. is this, you know, anarchistic, chaotic system yeah. where, we, you know, we have over 100,000 school districts for K through 12 schools which is way down from what it had been before World War II, by the way. So mm. there, even, even with that many, it's a, it represents an intense consolidation, uh, you know, from 100 years ago. And, um, you know, but then part of the thing, though, is that, like, you know, you go to school where you, where you live and there aren't that many options in any given school district. And, you know, that's kind of one of the focus, certainly, of the school choice movement, which is very closely allied with, uh, uh, libertarianism. Uh, Milton Friedman in 1955 came up with the idea of a school voucher, essentially to bring in market, you know, to, as a thought experiment to bring in market forces into K through 12 education. But the payoff in a lot of ways in the American system, you really see in the uh, college and university system, for which for all of its flaws, we've got about 4,400 four-year colleges and universities in the country. And you know, it's an inefficient system for sure. Uh, a lot of it is propped up, uh, you know, with government subsidies, student loans, Pell Grants and things mm-hmm. like that. So the, the market is bigger than it would be without those. Uh, and I don't think those are all bad, by the way, uh, necessarily. But, you know, what's great is that you have a lot of different schools doing a lot of different things and you have the ability of people to enter school later. I mean, one of the things that Americans, I think, and certainly libertarian Americans look at is that the degree of centralization in places like England, France, Germany, you know, and increasingly now places like Japan or China, Singapore, and, uh, you know, kind of like Asian tiger economies. And man, like the idea that if you fuck up, you know, when you're in third grade um, or in fifth grade, you know, that's it. Like you're, you're not going to university and it's not quite as draconian, but I, I went to high school in New Jersey uh, with a Japanese exchange student who, you know, explained that like by coming to the U.S. to for this year, like he was absolutely foreclosing a whole host of possibilities yeah. in the Japanese education system. And that's kind of fucked up, you know, <laughs> I mean, crazy. and there's, you know, wow. a, a, and one of the things that is disturbing actually, though, is also beyond like, you know, and I, I'm happy to talk about kind of questions of nationalism and national identity. I think we might get to that in a little bit um, because there's a strength there, but also, you know, a real problem, I think, when you're in a in that tightly controlled and regulated a system, as, as you see in many countries. You know, we want to be able to, you know, kind of pick and choose and move at our own pace and also you know, reconfigure our lives as we change. I mean, and again, to get back to this concept of libertarian, uh, there's a, a series of Austrian-born economists, Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek are the best known, where, you know, they talk about kind of, 
you, your your sense of yourself and your what what you want out of life, just like as with a consumer, changes over time. And a system that allows more people to kind of change and grow and and opt in and out of things as they get older and as their you know what they want changes is fundamentally you know that's a better system. You know, just I mean that's that's a moral statement to say it's better to have a society where more people can do more different things, you know, rather than a more regimented one. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Um, so I guess moving on to sort of um, more, more like more politics and um, kind of the, yep. uh, especially on the international arena, it, it seems like, you know, you, we talk a lot about liberalism now and, and, and the trend lines. Um, what do you think is happening, you know, both domestically, globally, the state of liberalism yep the post-World War II kind of liberal order, what is causing, there seems to be like a, a new economic and political re- realignment. What mm-hmm. is causing that in your estimation? So the first thing I'll, I'll say about that is, that, you know, and domestically, and I think this is broadly true internationally as well, but, you know, we focus a lot on like the end of, you know, and obviously when we're talking about liberalism here, we're talking about it not, you know, not Ted Kennedy style liberalism, but, a, you know, a kind of classical liberalism yes. of, you know, tolerism, pluralence, limited government, uh, you know, kind of freer markets, things like that. You know, there's definitely a populist, you know, pushback on, you know, what is perceived as the end of a kind of liberal or libertarian dream. Um, or the failure of that to deliver. But, you know, one of the things I, I like to stress is that the libertarian movement, you know, not the libertarian party and not people even who necessarily call themselves libertarian, have over the past 50 years, you know, 70 years, have actually seen a huge amount of wins. Uh, when you look at, uh, you know, the individual is taken more seriously um, and, and in a better way and is given more freedom to live however you want. If you are you know, if uh, you are black, if you are gay, if you are female, these things hold you back less than they ever did because society has shifted from a much more rigid kind of class, you know, broadly, not economic class, but, you know, a way of looking at people based on, you know, one or two parts of your identity. Um, and that's huge. The country now is, you know, much, you know, is fundamentally more interested in trade and they understand, you know, tr- uh, gains from trade in the United States. Despite the rise of Donald Trump, you know, more people are in favor of immigration than ever before. And you know, in the 20th century, people seventy five percent of people, according to Gallup, said that immigration is good for the country. I mean, it's like a historic high. Things like drugs are being legalized, not you know, partly because people realize that like top down solutions like prohibition don't work, and they poison everything from policing to the law to foreign policy to education you know they're just incredible time wasters so they're inefficient but also that people have a right to change their minds we all use all sorts of drugs to modulate our moods to increase our productivity uh you know to increase our sex lives people are just much more chill about a truly diverse and pluralistic society uh you don't have to be religious even to run for office anymore and I'm not, you know, I'm not particularly anti-religion. I'm not even anti-Catholic anymore. You know, I worked that out uh, when I was <laughs> in high school. Um, but it's, you know, but, you know, we live in a fundamentally more libertarian society than we did certainly at the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. I do think you're right, Melissa, that both nationally and internationally, the, the institutions 
that were created after World War II are are no longer working, you know, and that includes things like the UN or the World Health Organization or, uh, you know, the the World Trade Organization, uh, like, uh, you know, NATO. NATO ceased to have a clear function once the Soviet Union collapsed. And this is, you know, the fact that the the free world won the, the Cold War is a huge reason why the post-war consensus collapsed because the main thing that it was oriented around disappeared. Mm -hmm. And what we do in in the wake of that, and we saw this in the 90s with the rise of uh, kind of global trade and and a a positive defense of global trade and pulling more and more countries and more and more people into international trade, uh, there are a lot of things that are related to that. You know, not we didn't just trade more goods and services, but people started moving around more freely. The EU developed into, you know, what it kind of is now, although that's receding too, because, you know, the European Union coming out of the common market was very much of a Cold War, you know, a, a bulwark against the Soviet Union. So it kind of makes sense that it, you know, it had a lot of momentum and it continued to build up in a certain way after the end of the Soviet Union, but it seems to be kind of collapsing now. And I worry about all of these things, not because those things need to last forever, um, you know, the United Nations may have served a function. It doesn't really seem to be doing that now. I don't know that NATO, NATO doesn't need to stay as NATO, but we need to be working more on what are the institutions, what are the communities, what are the mindsets that will take us into this era now, where in a fundamental way, um, we are moving past the, the nation state as a as the fundamental institution in our lives um you know which started in you know maybe the 18th uh, certainly the 19th century and and had a run through part of the 20th you know we're you know we're we're in a different world now the world is networked the world is uh, global in a way that it wasn't and the other thing that i want to stress um in all of this is that a lot of the ennui and the malaise and the, what seems to be declined in North America and in Western Europe, what used to be called Western Europe, which is just Europe now, is is because other parts of the world are doing so much better. And we are recognizing that the world has multiple sources of power and of meaning and of kind of gravitational force. So I think in a lot of ways, all you know, the United States is in a place that is analogous to England and France after World War II, where they were part of the winning side, et cetera. But, and it's not like their lifestyles or their standards of living were going to decline precipitously, but they were not going to be as powerful or as hegemonic as they had been earlier in the 20th century. And the United States is still massively powerful in all of that. But we, you know, we're kind of owning up to the fact that we, we can't control everything. We shouldn't control everything and that the world is getting on with itself, you know, whether or not, you know, we're calling the shots or not. And that creates a lot of dislocation, a lot of fear, and a lot of anxiety, uh, culturally as well as economically and politically. I wonder if another factor is something you mentioned a moment ago, which is that we're living, we're kind of living in this more libertarian world already. So is it, you know, that brings me back to the kooks, the, the, you know, the anarchists and, and the extremes. I'm is not going to say it, anarchists are necessarily kooks, by the way. Oh, because, no, I separated. You know, okay, thank <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah, so, <laughs> but uh, that brings me back to people who maybe maybe their their views are more extreme and they're pushing further than where we currently are, where we currently were trying to get. 
is it is do you think it at least partially is the result of the fact that we've made so much progress we've already covered yeah. so much ground now it's like well we got to keep going because this is this is who i am this is part of my identity right. so now we have to kind of you know that seems like a phenomenon you were you were mentioning it in the in the form of institutions where they lost their primary goal because that you know that thing was over now and now they're mm-hmm. kind of just dwindling or they're kind of just I, I mean, I think in the United States, this is a, you know, a fundamental issue. And people like Wesley Yang, you know, used to talk more about, uh, you know, the struggle to find what he called a successor narrative to, you know, a Cold War, you know, identity in America, you know, which is, you know, and it's it's also odd because like in America, what what it, did it mean to be American during the Cold War? And, and kind of fundamentally, it, it meant to not be the Soviet Union. And right. so you, we, we just kind of became a mirror image. So we were individuals because they were, you know, they were a blob of, you know, non-sentient, you know, non-player characters who were all being controlled. Uh, we believed in free enterprise. They believed in communism, et cetera. You know, they were atheists. So we were religious, you know, and, and suddenly when your enemy disappears, you're kind of like, oh, I have to create a positive identity for myself. And it's more troubling than we think. The United States also in the 20th century, and I think a lot about this because my grandparents were all immigrants, and I think immigration is, you know, the the right of exit, uh, you know, as I talked about a little bit before, uh, but the the right to go wherever you want, not necessarily to be given a job and welfare and everything, but like that that might be the fundamental human right, like just to kind of move around, you know, freely. Um, is very much under attack, but uh, for a good chunk of the 20th century, the United States consciously try to call itself a nation of immigrants, even though, you know, when we were in a, in a, in a, in a meaningful way, even if we were always kind of, have always been ambivalent towards immigration and whatnot. And we've always been worried that, you know, whatever it is to be a true American will be overwhelmed when you start having these fucking idiots from, you know, Central Europe and from Italy and from, you know, now increasingly from, you know, East Asia and South Asia, you know, in Mexico, I mean, God, like, how can Mexicans be American, even if they're part right. of North America? Like, right. you know, this is, but the fact that we are struggling to come up with a coherent, inclusive group identity, I think empower, maybe it doesn't empower, but it allows people who are extreme to kind of argue, no, this is what it means to be American in the 21st century. And I think, you know, uh, uh, broadly speaking, a group like Black Lives Matter has said, okay, we're going to define what it means. What, what is America about? The American project is that it is, uh, you know, a country that is uniquely racist and hostile to difference and that it's only real function because it's, it's conceived in evil, you know, in slavery, which right, is evil. Right. Uh, you know, its its main purpose to continue existing is to pay literal and figurative reparations to the people that it's harmed. That's not going to win in the long run because it doesn't include like there aren't a, there's not enough buy in. Like you right. know, people are going to be like, no, I'm I don't get anything out of that really. I mean, including other minorities, but also then you know the the white people or the majority culture, however defined, that's paying you know for all of that. They're kind of like, why am I doing this after a right. certain while? But we haven't, you know, and populists like Trumpian populists are trying to come up with, you know, a, a narrative or, or a kind of imagined American, which is, you know, mostly white, which is mostly male, which is mostly reactionary, uh, which is part of its problem. Um, and that's not going to stick. 
Um, and so we're seeing, you know, a, a vying for what is what is the national identity going to be now that we we kind of need to invent one. It's, it's we seem to be doing a terrible job of of substituting the Soviet Union. With all right. these, with all these other ideas, we tried. You know, we yeah. tried with uh, with Islamic terrorism was going to be the enemy, but you know what <laughs> became clear, and it, it, you know, and I, and I, I, I don't know how to put it without sounding like a complete asshole, but like I knew this <laughs> from the beginning. But as as nine eleven was happening, I mean, as the at the ashes hadn't even fully settled from the Trade Center, you know, collapsing, and people were like, okay, well, you know, the the world now is in a struggle between, you know, America and Islamofascism or something. And it's like, you know, Islamic fascism is not an existential threat in the way that communism was, the way that international communism was. And even that was oversold. So, you know, that was one thing where we are now in a new Cold War. Donald Rumsfeld actually you know, shortly after 9-11 said, we are in a new Cold War. And like the old Cold War, this is going to take a fundamental reordering of society in this, you know, to fight this objective. And it's just, that wasn't, it wasn't a real enemy. Yeah, but there is a reordering now. I mean, if you, you know, I, I agree Absolutely. with you that, that there has been in many ways, you know, the liberal gains, especially when pertaining to individual rights, um, have only improved, but but globalization has been on the decline since you know the two planes slammed into the World Trade Center, two thousand and eight, when Lehman Brothers collapsed. Then when Brexit happened and and Donald Trump was elected, and then COVID, um, yeah. and so you see this reversion almost back to a Cold mm-hmm. War mentality. Even though the analogy breaks down, because we are actually economically now engaging with these other with, with these other nations. Right. I mean, there there seems to be a very clear axis developing, right? And it's led now by China. I mean, mm-hmm. Russia is showing us, especially with the results of the, the invasion of Ukraine, that yeah. that um, that it kind of overestimated its own um, military capabilities. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you actually about kind of the, the rise of China, because that seems to me to be the mm-hmm. new, the new frame, the framing of this new version of a Cold War, even though right. I don't like that analogy, because like I said, it's not really, you know, like it's very different from, from, the USSR. Yeah. It was. And the Soviet Union didn't own, you know, a, exactly. a significant chunk of America's national exactly. debt and whatnot. Exactly it's it's a fundamentally different kind of engagement. Yes. Yes. Um, but, you know, we were told for, for decades, it was almost yeah. um, an ironclad law that uh, once countries would liberalize economically, right, that, that they would also, the people would demand political reforms and that that would be, right. that would come. But it seems like this is being refuted today. If you look at modern day examples, it's not just right. China. There are other authoritarian countries uh, that have very, very free markets and really easy to do business there. So what what went wrong? Was was our assumption wrong or or did something in development go wrong? Yeah, it's uh, and I, I think you've referred to it and other people have as like Milton's first law of development. Milton Friedman, you know, said that. Uh, you know, when you get economic liberalization, people get richer and then they, you know, richer people start demanding political freedom because it's kind of like once you have a little bit of spare change, you want to be able to spend it on the things that you want to spend it on. So you push back against authoritarian regimes. And in the 80s, we saw this, you know, after the death of Mao in China, uh, the Chinese economy was liberalized. And, you know, in, in the spring of 1989, you had the Tiananmen Square 
uh, you know, the student revolt, you know, where they erected a statue of, you know, of liberty, like a facsimile yeah. of the Statue of Liberty and said we wanted freedom. And it all seemed to be going perfectly according to that plan. You know, the tanks rolled in and now we're looking at a very different China. What I would argue is that I think Friedman is still right and the timetable is clearly wrong. But what what China has been able to do, and in many ways, it's almost unique in this and certainly in terms of a large country, because there are places like Singapore, which on a, you know, on a on a day to day level, particularly for people who live there and you I, you know, everything I'm saying here, I have known and I'm misinterpreting from, you know, what you've said, uh, what you've told me. But, you know, it, it's authoritarian and socially repressive, but it is very easy to do business. But it's also not, you know, it is not a big, big player in the way that China is. It just doesn't have people. Um, and I think what China has been able to do is that they've been able to buy off political disruption and dissent mm. because since Mao died, essentially, you know, they've been returning, you know, high annual growth in their economy, which means that, you know, people in China within their lifetime, they can remember, you know, famines in the early 60s and the Cultural Revolution and whatever they have now is not quite that because they are now living in cities, you know, of millions of people. They have good jobs. They have a lot of food, et cetera. That is actually slowing down. Um, and I think what we're going to see is China, you know, is a massive country, you know, physically it's the size of the continental United States. And then it's got, you know, three times as many people as economic growth declines, China is going to be dealing with a lot of dis, you know, dissent and discontent internally because the people there are wealthier and it's kind of being eroded by government policy or by economic uh, disruption. So I think that you will be seeing a lobbying for, uh, you know, more freedom in China. And, you know, and this is uh, perhaps this is an opinion that, you know, is unburdened with, you know, empirical knowledge of the situation. But what I would argue is that just in the way that my grandparents, you know, they left, you know, what Rumsfeld called old Europe and they were peasants, you know, for a thousand years and they moved to what we would look at now as objectively horrible circumstances. I mean, my father and mother grew up in tenement buildings and they, you know, they had very, you know, they all, uh, you know, my, they had friends who were killed or deformed by polio and all of this kind of stuff. But it was so much better than what they would have had if they had stayed in Europe that it took a while and it actually took their, you know, my grandparents' grandchildren to be the ones who say like, fuck it, we're going to do what we want to do. My parents were not free. You know, they were economically better off. And I think something analogous in China is going to happen. Um, that as you get a couple of generations of full bellies um, and of rising expectations, um, you will push back against that. I don't think the Chinese government and the surveillance state is as overwhelmingly efficient as we are led to believe. Um, because ultimately, in the end, these systems get rotted out from within um, because people and this is not, you know, this this was part of the problem with the foreign policy put forth by the uh, Bush administration in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, it's like once you get rid of despotism, like liberty grows. I'm just saying, you know, China, China has, you know, China has shown its people what the good life looks like. And the first version of it is that you have enough to eat. Then you start to get better housing and cars and education, and that never ends well for authoritarianism. And I, that, um, you know, I think we'll see over the next five or ten years in China. But
we also have to understand that, you know, just on a fundamental objective level, people in China now are so much better off than they were 20 years ago, uh, that that is not a small thing to acknowledge because it helps explain what's going on there. Yeah, I, I largely agree with that point. Um, now, one of the things that is, you know, problematic, though, is like, let's say China's economy continues to decline, you know, relatively speaking and whatnot. What does the government do? Because, you know, when we saw this in Russia, you know, with Putin, you know, Russia is a, is almost a third world country and it's been broke for a long time. And, you know, when the economy is going terribly in Russia, et cetera, you know, Putin invades another country. And like, you know, with China, yeah. uh, one of the things that China seemed to have learned, which is why it's in such a relatively good position economically, is that its lesson from the Cold War is that you can, you know, you can have a lot more power and a lot more influence by trading with people rather Correct. than by invading them. The, you know, the Soviet Union, ultimately, one of the reasons it failed was because it was an overextended empire um, that couldn't really produce things. China seems smarter than that. Uh, the Xi Jinping has studied the fall of the USSR almost obsessively and and partly actually blames also the, you know, so, some of its uh, de- decline at the end to the Glasnost and Perestroika policies that were enacted. Right. And so, you know, we we are seeing this trend line where, you know, China seemed to be liberalizing and then all of a sudden this Xi Jinping takes power and he's he's grabbing onto the reins again and, you know, businesses are affected now. Um, you see a far more heavy-handed approach in regulating all sorts of behavior, the economy, Hollywood movie endings. You know, I just read that yeah. the, uh, you know, the rise of Gru, that terrible, terrible cartoon about the minions. Um, actually, right. they, they shot an alternative ending just for the Chinese market because evil yeah. cannot win, you know, and Gru is, a, right. is, is the title villain, but he's also, in, in our version, in the original Hollywood version, it's, you know, he, he ends up in a good place and that's not allowed to be shown in China. Right. So they actually shot a different ending for it. Um, and, and so, you know, I worry about also with the, with the retreat of the United States from various parts of the world, um, we have no appetite now after 9-11 for any kind of, you know, um, foreign interventions, uh, kind of global engagement, the terrible 20 years of the war on terror that has absolutely gone nowhere. And, and, you know, what happens to that vacuum is, is it will be filled by state actors like, like China. You already see that with the Belt and Road Initiative and, and um, you know, working with different countries to install their techno surveillance capabilities. Autocrats around the world see China as a better model for development than the United States. And, you know, you, you, you said it never ends well for autocrats, but... The experiment in liberal democracy is so short and we're living it. And it, it, I'm, not, I'm not as confident as you, um, as you are on, on, how, on how this ends because yeah. there seems to be a crisis of confidence even here in the West about our values, about you know, where we stand on this. And, and I, I, I struggle to see how um, this would end well, actually. I, you know, I agree with you. you know, broad, well, I, I I take seriously everything that you're saying. And one thing I would say also, though, is that the if the experiment in liberal democracy is only, you know, 250 years old or something, the experiment in total state surveillance based on a kind of Soviet model is even younger um, and less proven. So, you know, let's keep these things in perspective. And one of the things that's fascinating 
you know, my background's in literary studies and cultural studies, and I used to hear a lot about kind of post-colonial studies. And it always struck me as bizarre that Marxism, you know, as practiced in the Soviet Union and elsewhere, it's like the ultimate Western export to the developing world. And it was ne- it's always somehow like Mao is, you know, like, is, isn't communist China, you know, such a colonial outpost of the Enlightenment, you know, of, of 19th century Europe, more so, you know, than Kenya or Algeria, for God's sake. Uh, I wish people would kind of take that more seriously. But there, there's a, a number of things to think about in what you're talking about. And one is that the United States, I do think, is going through a real crisis of confidence and, and a kind of rightful one, because, you know, we, we killed a lot of people. We spent a lot of money and a lot of time chasing phantoms in the war on terror for no good reason. Most of our Cold War efforts were stupid and counterproductive. And we cannot separate in the United States uh, the idea of military intervention from having a positive presence elsewhere in the world. And this is what's worrying me. Is And it's not that Donald Trump said that, well, you know what, Europe should pay for its own defense and we shouldn't have troops everywhere around the world, even if he didn't do much to, to pull them home but that he also wanted to pull back economically. He wanted, you know, any time anybody is talking about becoming more of an autarky, you know, like a self-sustained economic and cultural and political bubble, man, that's like, that's just bad. That's, you know, that's the lesson to learn from China centuries ago when they burned their boats and looked inward and then just kind of regressed for, you know, for hundreds of years. Mm. And the fact is, is that the United States' lack of confidence is really showing in terms of economics and in terms of culture, you know, where the, the thing that people love about American culture, and this is true all over the world, is that it is a vehicle of self-expression and self-exploration and kind of exuberance of what happens when people are kind of free to explore the world and who they are and who they want to become. And who they want to marry, you know, and how they want to mongrelize all sorts of things. That's what sells America around the world. Mm. And it bothers me that in America, like a lot of the stuff that you guys deal with is this idea that individualism is somehow evil and rotten and needs to be extirpated. And that, you know, that we, you know, we, we need to be policing what we think and what we feel and what we say, mm. because it might harm somebody. It's like, man, you, you, you're really that if that kind of groupthink becomes totally endemic to American society, you know, in education and cultural production and economic production, we're really screwed. And that's, you know, to me, this is one of the things that uh, going back to this question of like, what is an American national narrative, you know, in the 21st century? So it's post-Cold War, it's post-war on terror, uh, it's post-COVID, it's post-economic crisis. Um, you know, if it needs to incorporate a heavy and healthy dose of individualism and of kind of self-actualization, I think what we are seeing in America is not people worried about scarcity as much as it is that we have managed successfully. And I think this is increasingly true of what used to be called the West, which is a bad and imprecise term, but also of the world. More and more people can now afford to think about, you know, what, what do they want to be when they grow up? And, you know, we have kind of massified existential angst and we, this is new in human history. Um, it's, it's new in American history, you know, where like everybody pretty much has a shot at kind of becoming the best version of themselves. Like, Yet you know, they all want to be influencers cliche. though. 
right? Yet yeah, they all want to be the well, same thing. Is, they just want to be TikTok yeah. influencers. So. Yeah, I you know I, the circles I travel in, Melissa, and I am significantly older than you. Not a lot of TikToker and you know influence uh, influencer dreams, but uh, yeah, but but this is this is what we need to be. You know, how do we give people the tools to kind of do that in a thoughtful, intentional, and real way? Um, and you know, those aren't the discussions we're having. And this is you know, my background is in the humanities, and like. It kills me when I started grad school in 1988 uh, for literature, uh, English or American literature and uh, cultural studies. And, uh, you know, like when you look at the number of people who major in the humanities in college now, you know, it's like it's gone from whatever it was to zero. You know, it's I mean, like that's the direction. And it's bad because the humanities are, I think, traditionally one of the ways that you deal with this. Like, how do Mm. you, um, you know. How do, you, how do you learn from the past without being trapped by the past? Um, and right. how do you kind of create these spaces, you know, and this is what art and uh, literature and music and creative expression is about, where you, you create these spaces where people are kind of scenario planning through writing and movies and music and drama uh, and whatnot. And we're, you know, we're, I don't, in, in one way, we're doing that more than ever because there's more stuff out there. And in another way, that that's one of the big threats is like we've got to shut this stuff down because people are making songs and, you know, movies and writing books or having conversations I don't like. So right. we got to stop that. Speaking of that, I, I was curious to ask you about this because there's this tension between social media or Twitter specifically as the, yeah. you know, the, the concept of Twitter as the public square and yeah. then the concept of Twitter as a privately owned platform yeah, whose owners can do whatever they wish, right? So, right. I mean, that's those things are directly in conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. And every time somebody gets banned from Twitter, we have the same conversation about free speech, free expression, and the culture versus the reality. I'm curious what you think about it from a, from a libertarian perspective. Yeah, and, I, and this is where I I fall into a pretty doctrinaire libertarian line, which is that Twitter is a private entity, uh, mm-hmm. as are all of the social media companies, and that. The last thing I want to see, like, no matter how shitty they are, I don't want to see the government starting to tell them how to how to operate their business, because this is ultimately a business regulation. And on top of that, though, I think it's really important to look at the reality of things and that, you know, it's incredibly important to recognize that as this conversation was happening, Facebook, even Facebook left Facebook and became meta. Uh, you know, and they are showing a decline in, in the developed world, you know, not, you know, and, and Facebook functions more like the internet in, in many poorer countries. Um, and it also, it's, you know, it's got its issues, but it's, it's giving access to something that people absolutely didn't have in the U S and in Europe, it's fading, um, because, you know, in terms of users, same thing with Twitter, Twitter has had essentially, you know, a, a very static user base because People don't like it and people don't like it for different reasons. Some are like, oh, there's too much unmoderated talk or there's too much moderation, but it's not working that well. And you're seeing a proliferation, whether it's TikTok uh, or, you know, discord groups and all sorts of decentralized and new, less governable or more governable, you know, alternatives. Uh, What I think is most important is not what any of like focusing on big tech. This is, you know, the his, uh, the economic history of the United States and antitrust action is that 
big companies, like dominant firms, get become the target of antitrust, that's like the leading indicator that they no longer matter the way they used to. Uh, this was mm-hmm. true of the railroads. It was true of of uh, you know big corporations uh, like you know Standard Oil and and tobacco companies and things like that. They want the regulation oftentimes because it allows them to fix the market at a place where they're at their peak, and they know that. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg and uh, you know talked in 2018 about how it's time for the internet to be regulated, and we want to help you write those regulations. It was quite blatant <laughs> yeah, about course. it, and uh, you know, and Facebook has been running ads saying, you know, a lot has happened since 1996 when the rules that broadly govern the internet were first staked. You know, it's, you know, and they have like people born in 1996 talking about like, look at how much older and fatter I am now. Like we need new regulations. Right. You know, they're, that's a clear signal. Like, you know, they want regulatory capture because they're going to be able to be in charge of it. So I don't worry about that too much as long as people have the ability to go elsewhere. And I think broadly speaking that they do. And I think certainly all of us who are in a broad free speech coalition, which you know, free speech is libertarian, but not all people in the free speech coalition, you know, are doctrinaire libertarians for sure. Um, but we have so many tools at our disposal. And I think, you know, groups like you're doing, uh, you know, as well as the shift of fire from, you know, talking yeah. about higher education to, you know, areas that the ACLU has has kind of announced a pullback on. These are all really good signs that there is a robust free speech, free expression, free thought, you know, not only community, but the ability to get this stuff out there. Um, and that that's, that's the ball that you got to keep your eye on. And also then all of these social institutions and mindsets that come along with that, which is, you know, things like tolerance and pluralism, because when we talk about things like wokeism or, you know, when I was in grad school, it was political correctness. It was the the term for effectively the same phenomenon, we we need to push back on that because if you don't, you know, it's they're bullies uh, in a, in a profound way. And there are also, you know, there are times when the, the the things that are being raised, the subjects and topics need to be discussed more fully, but it always has to be in the context of a marketplace of ideas and a free speech. But I think one of the concerns which we have seen, especially in the last two years, is this idea, Wesley Yang called it the vertically integrated messaging apparatus. Zay Jelani called it the right. blue stack. How mm-hmm. big tech seems to work in collusion with, you know, other NGOs, governments sometimes. And even in the example of what happened to Parler when Donald Trump got kicked off Twitter, mm-hmm. um, when Parler, you know, tried to to become the next um, social network and then gets kicked right. out of the apps. You know, it's, it's just... Yeah. Platform upon platform upon platform, and how right. how deep do you go? How how deep does the censorship go? Payment processing mm-hmm. companies and things like that, and yeah, and they act almost in concert. Whether or not there's there's coordination, you know, it doesn't seem to be right. the case at all. But but they're just acting as if there was, and yeah. and to service a particular party or or narrative. And you know, we saw that in the Hunter mm-hmm. Biden case as well when that story broke just right. before the election. And, yeah, and yeah. I, it just seems like um, even though I'm, I'm optimistic that, you know, competition, that uh, the American economy is vibrant enough that there will be competition and people yeah. will flock certain places. It just seems sometimes when, when these things happen, it, it seems insurmountable that there's just so much power concentrated um, in the stack that it seems hard to yeah. surmount. 
I I agree with you that all of these things are concerning. And, you know, and as somebody who's read a lot of dystopian literature, I have to say that, you know, the day that the New York Post story about the Hunter Biden laptop went up and I went to Twitter and, you know, because I'd heard like it was being censored somehow and like the inability to link to it or to like (laughs) acknowledge it on that platform, that was deeply disturbing. I mean, because that's what you, you know, you would see in a movie where things are being shut down in a way. And then, you know, you know, it's creepy to his credit. uh, You know, Jack Dorsey did not mumble an apology or kind of explain it away the way that Zuckerberg on uh, recently on Joe Rogan kind of talked about why Facebook, you know, de-amplified that story Mm -hmm. and how that took place. Dorsey said that was an absolute mistake. And of course, he's no longer at Twitter. So, you know, you might read into that. Um, and he's mm-hmm. a big proponent of, you know, fully decentralized messaging platforms and things like that, which I've, you know, I, I like all of that. You know, so there's absolutely no question that this is the case. And whether it is, you know, a coordinated consensus or it's just that people are kind of allies, uh, you know, or are moving in the same direction, it is something. Yeah that we need to fight back against to always be expanding the scope of, you know, free speech and free expression. By the same token, what also worries me is the move among conservatives, you know, and populists and even some libertarians to say, the only way we can fight this is by adopting the tactics of the left, of the woke left and of government regulation. And, you know, Ron DeSantis has tried this a couple of times to, you know, create laws that would essentially tell businesses how to run their business in the name of protecting freedom and, you know, limited government. That way madness lies. And there is an alternative, which I think is a kind of, is a libertarian alternative, but it requires a lot of work and it requires the type of work you're doing, the type of work people at Reason are doing and whatnot. And we need to ultimately you know, at the group level and at the platform level, we need to argue as loud as hell and, you know, push for change within those levels. But ultimately, you know, it is coming down to the individual level as well. And this is where we need to have the kind of education, but also the comfort with choice and difference and a protecting of that, even when we don't like the choices or the thoughts that other people are expressing. And you know, again, I'm, I'm, I just turned 59, which is unbelievable uh, to me. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, like I grew up, I grew up in a moment, you know, like, so I was born in 63. And um, like, there was a moment post World War Two, where particularly things like free speech and free expression broke open, you know, only in the late 50s. And this was a, a bunch of people who either went to jail or were threatened with jail, but to, to write and publish and perform in certain ways, whether it's Allen Ginsberg or Lawrence Ferlinghetti or, uh, you know, Lenny Bruce and whatnot. Like, I I realize now that I grew up in this weird moment where free speech was pretty valorized. And it was always struggling, but it was, you know, everybody kind of agreed. And that I took that for like a kind of universal one-way breakthrough to an era now of like frictionless disagreement clearly that's wrong. And like what we are seeing now is like, we need to, we need to fight to constantly not only be articulating, you know, our individual points of view on given issues, but that larger embrace of a platform of free speech, because that's, that is the best way forward on this stuff. And that is also what is fundamentally under attack, along with the individualism that it kind of springs from. 
Uh, so for me, that's like where that in many ways, that's where the battle is. Yeah, I, I think one of the one of the major issues of our time is that, you know, the cultural and intellectual institutions are, around which American life is organized around themselves, like look at what's happening in the publishing industry or universities, yeah. uh, you know, it, it's under assault there. I actually yeah. wanted to ask you how how all of this affects art and cultural output. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, I, I don't know if it's just me, but, but you know, it, it seems that the, uh, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, like each decade was, was distinctive. It had its own style, its own, you know, like Sirius XM can have that decade of music. And it, it, it seems to me that ever since like the year 2000 till now, it's been like just one long piece of, just utter garbage. I mean, this sounds like, I, it sounds like I, I, I'm like- the, the, I, I hate <laughs> to inform you, Melissa, but I think you're just getting old. Yeah, I was going to say that. I sound yeah, like the, the, old Muppet on, the old Muppets <laughs> on the balconies, yeah. like get off my lawn. Yeah. But I, I'm wondering what, what you think about, you know, because one thing you've actually educated me a lot on is just in general, just Americana, because I didn't grow up here and I don't really know many cultural touchstones and 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 mm-hmm. you seem to be an expert in this area. It just there's a Which lot. Which is of- a polite way of saying that I watch a lot of TV. <laughs> so I think. <laughs> and just con- yeah, but 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 the other kinds of arts, you know, like uh, yeah. literature, poetry, um, yeah. and and is it? I know wokeness affects comedy. We we talk about that a lot. Political correctness, but there also seems to be a flatness, uh, you know, because we live in this shareholder. We're trying to maximize shareholder value data-driven world. And it just seems like we're not taking risks anymore. A, a song like Bohemian Rhapsody would not be produced by, by the studios anymore. What do you think about the state of our art? And, and yeah. in your opinion, when was the best, when was the, the golden age for all of this? So the best decade for like American art will be the next one. Okay. <laughs> As much as I like, you know, certain things I grew up with. And, and I really, I'm, I like that answer. I'm, I really mean it because like yeah. part of what you're talking about, Melissa, and this is not trivial. And I want to, I want to talk about it if we can, because I think it's really important, which is that communal experience where there is a couple of art objects that everybody from a, from yeah. a moment in time can see, like we're all watching the same moon or something and that connects us. And it may be that that world is kind of disappearing. And there's a real loss there. I'm not sure it's happening, but let's get to that in a second. But (laughs) what I would argue is that, you know, when you look at what's out there and this was, you know, I I started professionally really writing in the the 90s uh, in a a serious way, just as the Internet was becoming a mass phenomenon with with the World Wide Web laid on top of it. And, you know, suddenly this profusion and proliferation of cultural expression is which continues apace. And what's you know, it is phenomenal because like within a few clicks, both of legal and, you know, non-authorized streaming services or, you know, using uh, BitTorrent and whatnot, like I can get at my fingertips virtually every movie, every song, every book that has ever been written, plus all of the stuff that has never been produced in those formats. The, you know, the mu- music studio or music labels, record labels, have taken a hit. Movie studios are not what they were, even as they are producing more content annually than they used to. You know, and, and it's hard to ever say, like, you know, you can say, okay, this is a good decade or this is a good time or a bad time for art. But like, you know, when you say there's a flatness, 
you know, there's stuff by like Lady Gaga that is as wonderfully bizarre and extreme and experimental as anything that Queen put forth. And then there are literally millions of bands on like Bandcamp or on um, SoundCloud, you know, that are doing stuff that might only reach dozens of people, but it's all out there. You know, every, every experiment is happening in real time. Plus you can rummage through the archives of the past. So for me, this is a spectacular period. And I can tell you as somebody who both loves certain kinds of mass culture, but also was always like, yeah, you know, this isn't speaking to me. Like the ability to find niche culture and mainstream culture is like unparalleled. And it's continued to grow exponentially since the internet. Um, And even before then, this is part of the story of post-war America. Uh, which I'm very interested in. And, you know, when you look at like in the 50s, the kind of the rise of underground publishing and, you know, and there's earlier cognates to this in a previous era, but it's just people, you know, when copying machines became possible and printing became cheaper. And then, you know, in the 70s, when like early versions of desktop publishing happened, like suddenly people were able to expand their audiences and cross pollinate and mix. It's just you know, it's so phenomenal. And, you know, Angel, I I mean, I know you, you're a musician and whatnot. And, you know, it's a double-edged sword. I used to be a music journalist back in the 80s. And, you know, there, there were indie labels and stuff, but it was like, you know, when you got signed by a major label, that was really important in a way that that isn't important anymore. I mean, I think that's a good thing, right? So in in the context of uh, being a musician and trying to make it, trying to get out there, right? It used to be yep. that the gatekeepers, you know, you needed to get through them, right? And they and the gate was really small, and everything on the other side of the gate was extremely important, right? There was you right. weren't going to record, you weren't going to get an audience, you weren't going to tour. None of those things were going to happen unless you had support from these bigwigs who had the yep. power to, to facilitate all that stuff for you. The internet has completely obliterated that, right? So on the one hand, it's great because I can just record in my bedroom an entire album, put it up on the internet immediately, and it can reach the people that it will reach, right? On the other hand, of course... Or it can be like publishing, you know, where it's like, or it could be released, but it could reach the dozens of people that are going to listen to it. Right. Or it can be released by a major studio or a publishing house and reach dozens of people. Like it's... right. Awful yeah, yeah. On the same level, it's not necessarily going to help you if you get signed anymore. I uh, I interviewed Andrew WK, who's a musician and performer, mm-hmm. uh, who kind of came in at uh, like in the late '90s, and he got signed to a major record deal and whatnot. Yeah. And so he got to see the end of the studio system as it kind of existed in post-war America. Right. And then it kind of fell apart and he had to reinvent himself in various ways. And it's, yeah. you know, and it's very different and it's not necessarily better. It's certainly not better for all people, but more people are participating in the production and right. consumption and circulation and distribution of music than ever right. before. But see, so there are a couple of problems with this though. It reminds me of this Christopher Hitchens quote where he says, you know, <laughs> I know exactly. It's true. <laughs> it's true that everyone has a book in them. Yep. Yep. And for the exactly. vast majority of people, that's where it should stay. 
Right. right. <laughs> so that's just another way of saying, you know, now everybody's got a band. Everybody's got a band camp. Everybody's yeah, got an album and a website. Everybody has yeah, a everybody's podcast. Got a podcast. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think all of us probably have more than one podcast. So it's, it's like, true. it's already yeah. it's exactly. you know, enough. And so, exactly. so there's a, there's an overwhelming number now yeah. and you just get lost in the mix. And so the rat race just kind of, it just kind of shifted to something else because now people need to do the extra thing to get up, to get ahead and to get above everybody else yeah. in order to get people's attention. So there's that problem. Well, but there's also I, the problem know, of, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. There will never be another Michael Jackson. You know, there will never be another right. Beatles. And it's not because there won't be somebody as talented. I don't think that's the case. I think there are plenty of people just as talented, I'm sure, out there. But we're not going to know about it necessarily. And we're not going to receive it in the same sort of way, right? The way that when Thriller, when the Thriller video debuted, everyone was glued yeah. to the screen and they couldn't wait to see it. It was just this mind-blowing event. And there was a commonality, like the way you were saying about, you know, we all have the same moon. Right. That, that thing yeah. doesn't exist anymore. And I think that is a loss of a kind. I, I think it may be. And it's definitely a loss of a kind. Does it matter yeah. that much? And uh, let me tell you a story, which I, you know, because, and you mentioned the Beatles, so I feel, you know, legitimated in telling this. I was in <laughs> high school when John, John Lennon was shot in like December yeah. of 1980. And I had been out at a book club. I swear I wasn't doing anything bad. Uh, and I came home <laughs> late and my father was up and my father had been born in the 20s. And as I came in, he said, oh, one of those Beatles was shot. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, one of the, the Beatles guys was shot. And I was like, well, which one? And, you know, this in 1980, my father was born in 23. So somebody do the math. He was in his late 50s, right? Right. So he's like my age. And can you imagine ever being in a world where you didn't know who the fucking Beatles were individually and what their personalities were and everything? Right. And I was like, well, which one? You know, because it kind of matters. And then he said to me, not the one with the nose, the one with the wife. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. So, so it was John Lennon. And he was like, yeah, yeah. In Central Park, you know, or whatever, wow. the Dakota. Oh he, I mean, he, he was born not far from there. So, I, and I tell that story Partly because it's like my father absolutely participated fully in the 20th century. You know, he was, uh, you know, 20th century America. He was an, a, an immigrant critic who grew up in the Depression. He was in the Normandy invasion, uh, you wow. know, and then he, he became middle wow. class, you know, kind of middle class. At, you know, like he's, he's there and he had no fucking idea who the Beatles were. Right. He would not have been able to name a single song. And I say that not to take away from the Beatles or anything, but just to throw into question whether how big a loss is it that people don't know you know that michael jackson had a, a chimp named bubbles right <laughs> and, and michael jackson i can tell you when the the last magazine the last pop magazine that i worked for it was an american version of a british magazine called the smash hits we used to be able to put michael jackson or madonna or duran duran on the cover of this was not a good magazine and you could sell a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand copies on the newsstand like these people were gods who moved product and right. nobody exists like that anymore. Really. Right. You know, it's yeah. so there, things have definitely changed, but to me, whatever loss there is, and I agree, it's a change and there is a loss because you want everybody to be able to like depend, you know, and it depends on your age, which matters, but like, you know, at closing time to be able to everybody to know the words of a Van Morrison song or of, uh, you know, American pie, 
or whatever, maybe Thriller, Billy Jean or something. I don't know, right. you know, and yeah. to have that shared experience. And we may not have that in the same way as we used to, but the gain from setting everybody free from those systems of narrow control and cultural production and consumption yeah. and individual idea. Because like, to me, ultimately, what I find fascinating about people like Madonna and Michael Jackson in particular is that they, you know, uh, people have said this about the Velvet Underground or the Ramones, uh, you know, that like, you know, their albums didn't sell it very well, but everybody who saw them in concert was like, I'm going to start a band and do my own. So they're like change agents. Like, Madonna in particular, I think yeah. just, you know, like she makes everything possible at, because you're like, well, if she can do it, I can do it. And I'm going right. to do my version yeah. of that and live an individual life like I want to actualize. Yeah. And I think we're still in that. And so that's the dynamic that's fundamentally important, not whether or not we all know what's number one on the billboard charts. Having said that, if I may bring this back to a larger question, and uh, Melissa, I really take this seriously, and I, I don't know the answer to this, and I don't want to be glib about it, uh, but it is like on kind of the national level or in a community, in a broader community, whether we consider, you know, call ourselves Americans or we call ourselves cosmopolitans or something like what in an age where we can kind of go in and out of different communities at will and we don't have like an overwhelming, you know, Aesthetic. forced identity. Yeah. Yeah. Like how do we, how do we stay close enough to one another so that we agree to disagree as right. opposed to just being like, you know what, fuck you, I'm done with you and your system. Because right. I think that's part of the dynamic that's going on now where it's right. like, you know, people can't agree to disagree because we don't feel like we're part of the same collective identity. And, That's kind of what I was getting yeah. at. Of, yeah. uh, you know, it's like, uh, listen, I hate everything you're thinking and everything you're saying and everything you stand for, but man, Billie Jean slaps. Like we're both yeah. grooving to that. When it comes on, we're barbering right. our heads and it just, that's a fundamental thing that we can't do anything about. It's just, it's a reality. And um, we have those moments of, you know, after 9-11 and, you know, it really lasted, you know, maybe a couple of weeks if we're even stretching it, but like, you know, that we're all Americans, right? You know, even the French were Americans briefly. And um, yeah, you know, like, is there a way to forge a collective identity that helps structure positive interactions, um, you know, that creates an operating system that allows us to respect certain very broad rules and that keep us as a functioning community or a collective or a society? Um, and I think that's part of what we need to, you know, in this new age of individualism, you know, of, of lived individual experience and of choice, yeah. you know, I get to, more than in the past, I get to choose how I define myself. You know, society is going to define me, but I have more relative power than I used to. Right. And I get to choose where I live, um, you know, because in fact, you know, in general, I mean, there's there's definitely attempts to shut down borders in the United States and in Europe and in many parts of the world. But broadly speaking, more people are moving around the globe, you know, like with a freedom that is kind of historically rare. But then that presents, you know, what then is an American, right? You know, in a world where we're at the level of foreign born percentage of the population that we were in the mid 20s, which caused a freak out to shut down immigration. You know, like, how do we come up with these identities that allow us to, you know, kind of participate fully in everything that modern society has to offer? Well, I, I recall in the book Identity by Francis Fukuyama, he, he actually mm -hmm. t 
talks about how identity politics is a response to this kind of feeling unmoored in a way that modern culture kind of, you know, paradoxically frees us, but but causes this crisis, this existential crisis in a way that makes people search for identities in ways that he thinks contribute contributes to this rise of kind of identity yeah. politics and, you know, downstream, we're all now living in the culture that, you know, that that's consequential to that. Right. I, I, I what do you, do you agree with his assess, assessment? You know, to a certain degree. And I, I interviewed him when that book came out and I think it was, what was it? 2017 or 2018? It might yeah. even. Oh 16. yeah. yeah, it was after yeah. Trump, so actually, it's like, yeah. it was, yeah. yeah. And it was, but it was very prescient. Yeah. It was. And there were a couple of other books that were like that, that were talking about there was, uh, you know, the kind of breakdown of a broadly collective American identity that allowed us to rec- recognize each other as, yeah. you know, of the same broad tribe in a way that was kind of working. You know, it's never perfect or anything. And in that, if I'm remembering and in our conversation and in the book, he kind of talks about, okay, well, let's, we got to return to the idea of, the United States as a creedal nation, that we are not, unlike most countries, it's not about blood and soil. It's not about, you know, that you've lived here for many generations or that you all look alike. And, you know, I, you know, on some level, there's power to that, but it's also God like that, you know, so like the solution to, you know, calls for reparations is to read the Declaration of Independence and recite the Pledge of Allegiance or something. And, it's not enough, you know, and this is also something that kind of libertarians get attacked on, like, you know, that we were, were abstractions, we're not yeah. living in the thick real life of like what it means to be a, commu- a community and like, yeah. go, you know, go, go to, you know, deindustrialized Ohio where everybody is, you know, fucked up from opioids okay. because all the factory jobs left, et cetera, you know. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've lived in, you know, precisely that kind of place. I've lived in the deindustrialized Midwest and not as a tourist, but, you know, as, as somebody I live in, a, in southwestern Ohio, full and part time for like 20 years. So I get that. And it may not be as extreme as many people on the coast say it is because everybody has a reason to paint the picture as particularly dire. But I do think we need to, you know, come up with a good functional broad definition of what it means to be an American in 20th, 21st century, you know, the, the 21st century world, because we've yeah. gone through phases and there was, you know, where, well, we were all immigrants, whether we were f- brought here by force or by choice, or by economic force or by slave, you know, slavery or something like that. And, um, you know, that doesn't have the juice that it, it had, um, you know, that we're all the opposite of communists, uh, you know, that we're all like Yankee traders or something like that. We need to really work on that and come up with something. And for me, I think, you know, this is the paradoxical kind of group identity, which I, I have not articulated with any clarity to my own liking, much less to having any impact on the world, is that there's this weird irony and like emphasizing individualism, you know, that America is kind of like, you know, is a place where you go to be the the best individual that you can be. And, mm-hmm. you know, so like, you know, it's, it's a nation or a community of individuals. And, you know, the, what proceeds from that are a series of kind of political institutions, social conventions, economic, you know, kind of regulations and things like that. 
But I don't know that that right. has the juice um, because it's well, not maybe, as good as being in a gang, you know, and, and beating other people up. <laughs> well, may, uh, maybe. Which is one way that you form group identity. I mean, I, you know, I, yeah. uh, uh, the PBS is running a, a very good documentary by Ken Burns, Lynn Novick, and Sarah Botstein um, shortly called The U.S. and the Holocaust. And it's about the U.S. in the 30s and like how did people in America respond to mm. increasing rep reports of increasing violence against European Jews. And, um, you know, the Nazis had a, you know, uh, the one thing you can say about them is that they had a very good method for creating in-groups and out-groups, you know, in right. structuring society. Uh, Imperial Japan did this. Uh, Melissa, I mean, you may be in a position because you come from such a young country, which is creating, is still creating its foundational myth and identity. Obviously, you rejected that on a profound level that you're living in the United States. But like seeing the machinery of how does how does a kind of cultural identity get constructed out of almost nothing? Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. that's what we need to be working on. And it needs to be in a way that is not, you know, in the past, what it meant to be an American, and this is part of my dissertation, was about like, the, you know, in the 1920s, in the face of all these immigrants, you know, who didn't speak English, who ate garlic, and who worshipped strange gods flooding into cities that were for the first time dominating the American landscape. There were a lot of books written by people who had been here for a long time, uh, you know, about, okay, well, this is what an American is. This is how an American mm -hmm. acts. And weirdly, it never... You know, it, it like there was no role for like a garlic eating Italian who went to church every day, you know, who went to Roman Catholic mass every day. Like, yeah, you're not yeah. American. Um, and, you know, that goes way back. What's his name? Um, uh, Henry Thoreau in Walden. At one point, he, uh, you know, on a side, he d dives into a lean to during a rainstorm in Walden Woods. And there's an Irish migrant family there. And he goes off on a little riff about how they, they can never be the real Americans. He's the real American. So, you know, right. that like we've always been doing, like we got to come up with better definitions that also are not so vague and blah that they don't mean anything. Right. Maybe our final question will give you an opportunity to try out the, uh, you know, the ultimate in-group, which is just humanity itself, the human, mm -hmm. just the fact that we're all human beings. Um, the last question we ask all our guests is, as you know, our approach at FAIR is to to take what we call a pro-human approach to right. the issues that we've been discussing and all the issues that we grapple with. Uh, so, you know, why don't you go ahead and think, think about, think out loud about what pro-human means to you? How do you conceptualize that idea and how other people can take that concept and run with it in maybe the ways that you were just talking about? I mean, I do like, uh, and I'm so committed to it that I've forgotten the Roman author who, you know, stated it, but the, the epigram that uh, nothing that is human is foreign to me. Uh, mm. It's, you know, I find that like a truly profound statement. And I think cultivating an appreciation for that. I was, you know, there's a book by the American novelist Bernard Malamud uh, called The Fixer, which is about a, um, a guy in uh, like turn of the century Ukraine, I, I think uh, it's a, a, you know, Eastern Europe who gets caught up in a pogrom uh, and he's accused of killing Christian babies to make matzah. You know, it's like the blood libel. And what's profound about it is, you know, it's an American Jew imagining this in terms of universal humanity of like 
you get into the mindset of what it feels like to be othered that much because a lot of it is from the perspective of the the guy who is going to be killed because of this but it also paints how societies take people who were part of a society and then other them so profoundly um and you know being aware of that and then also being aware and this is what i love about kind of libertarian ideas and, you know, and about markets and about the concept of gains from trade, like the idea that if absent force, you know, we, we tend to, you know, humans are very social and we exchange a lot, sometimes economically, sometimes culturally, sometimes, you know, physically and all of this kind of stuff. But it's like, we tend to do it because like we, we will be better off. Like if, you know, if you have something that you don't value as much as I kind of value it and I have something I don't value, you know, at the end of an exchange, if I give you a dollar for a glass of milk, you know, you're better off because you didn't want the milk and I'm better off because, you know, I didn't want the dollar as much. And I think kind of mapping that onto an understanding also of the glories of kind of mongrelization and hybridization that Mm. are everywhere in nature and in culture and in history. I think a lot about, uh, for me, I think the study of history is, is fundamentally about a pro-human approach. Um, you know, my grandparents and my families from Ireland and Italy were for a thousand years. And I, I only know my family history back to my grandparents. I don't know anything beyond that. But, you know, for a thousand years or whatever, they were just bred to be peasants. They were non-player characters in, in history. And they, you know, you know, they came to America and then suddenly like, what am I like? I'm neither Irish nor Italian. I am American, but I'm a different American than my parents or grandparents were. My kids are radically different. They have a different, you know, kind of heritage, genetic and ethnic, as well as financial and economic. And the idea of, you know, that endless mixing and churn, which can be very overwhelming and it can be exhausting, but it's also, it's, the, it's reality and it's really exciting because we're constantly in a, a kind of social and cultural and political act of alchemy where we're just taking base materials and kind of creating something more valuable out of them. And to me, thinking about that and thinking about humans, I mean, like this is kind of fucking great, right? That the three of us are on this podcast. We are all super of the moment, we're all super Americans, you know, and Melissa, I have to give you like, you get the gold medal because you chose to be here. I mean, I guess Angel and I chose not to leave. So that's okay. But we're kind of lazy. And in fact, if I'm recalling correctly, we're both living like, you know, within a, a, a yeah. couple dozen miles of where we were born. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I somehow I was born in Brooklyn. I live in lower Manhattan. I traveled around the country and I ended up not far from home, Angel. You're like from New Jersey, right? And you're in New Jersey or in New York. But what I'm getting, but what I'm getting at is, you know, the idea that, you know, that mongrelization and the hybridization and that process and discovery, it's kind of beautiful and wonderful. And what are the, what are the attitudes? What are the mindsets? What are the institutions that allow that to happen? Not without problems, because there are, but as frictionless as possible and as powerful and possible. And there will be times where we want to limit it, but it's like, no, that's, that's the way to riches, uh, both, you know, material and immaterial. So yeah. for me, and it, for, in an American context, it is very much grounded in, 
the idea of history and of migration, both within the country and from without the country. And then constantly looking at what is, you know, you know, what is the, what is, uh, you know, that which is human is, is not foreign to me. I think, you know, that inspires me on a, on a daily basis. And I, I don't know, and this is a real loss or a real lack. I don't know how to, um, you know, manifest that, you know, in like, here's a five point program for education or something. Sure. But, you know, that for me is the beginning, the idea of understanding that a human society is about alchemy ultimately. And it's about mongrelizing and, a, and changing and growing and moving into a future that includes more people rather than fewer. That's beautiful. That might be my favorite answer to the pro-human question of all. Awesome. Thank you very much, Nick Gillespie, for joining us. I was going to say I'm also very pro-dog. Yes. Thank you. Pro-human, pro-dog. Well, see, now this conversation is over because I'm pro-cat. So oh, and we, oh. obviously, we, we cannot Cancel. live in a society with, you know, dogs. And Blocked cats. and reported. <laughs> yes, that's right. All right. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for the stuff you guys are doing and for the opportunity to, to talk with you. Awesome. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com and tune in to Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again. And see you next time.